four, three, two, one, zero, and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hey everybody, this is Dan Milner with Blurb, and I'm in Los Angeles, California today. I guess Hollywood, to be more exact. To be very exact. To be very exact. In fact, when we look out the window right here, you can see the Hollywood sign. And the Rolling Stones are down the street, I'm just saying. Are they playing in that small club? Yeah. Oh, man, and we have no tickets. Special rehearsals, five bucks. If you'd have hustled, Dan, we could have oh, gone. I don't me know hustle. what you were thinking of. Yeah, Come never on. mind. So, uh, I'm here with someone who I haven't introduced yet, because I'm, I'm saving and I'm waiting up. We met probably 15 years ago. 2000. 2000. Well, that's a pretty good guess. Good guess, too. Oh, man. You looked that up. Oh, I've you, done you my prepped. homework. You prepped. And Sarah Terry, which I was going to describe you as a photographer, but which you are, but you're also a filmmaker and you're a writer and you're many other things that we're going to talk about. Okay. But when I met you 15 years ago, you were primarily writing at the time. Rolling Stone, Christian Science Monitor, a lot of other of those other were kind of behind me. I was I was I had just moved into photography, but I was still doing writing to pay bills. Okay, I had moved into photography. And what was the what prompted you to because you were when you were writing, you weren't writing for small weekly things. You were writing for some major publications, and a lot of people I think would look at that and say, "Oh my God, this is perfect. This is what I've wanted." But you transitioned into the visual side. What what prompted you to go visual? Um, <laughs> I. I had a personal crisis that caused me to lose my faith in words. And I that picked, sounds heavy. <laughs> I picked up a camera, and it, and it was a way to communicate with somebody who had gone AWOL, you know, AWOL in his own soul, and I couldn't reach him. And uh, I picked up a camera to try to, to remind him. I tried to give him back his memories. And so were you making pictures for this other person, or was it for yourself or a combination of both? It was a really interesting space, because I, I was still a writer then, and what happened, and I loved words, you know, loved my entire life. You know, the joke in my family is that I was born talking. And, you know, in sixth grade, the vice principal thought I'd be a, a criminal defense attorney, and my teacher thought I'd be a union labor leader. You know, like, I believed in... <laughs> Jesus. You know, you can kind of get the feeling for, like, I, words could persuade, and I felt that as a journalist. And, and then I just hit this time in my life when they failed me, completely left, and I was so shocked that I stopped taking writing assignments, and I stopped talking to most of the people I knew, and I picked up this camera, and they began being for this other person to try to give him back memories, because I thought that would be the way to wake him up. And then along the way, and they were these very odd little pictures. I had this amazing pair of pistachio green um, French sneakers that I wore all the time, um, particularly that summer. And I would go put the tip of my shoe, I never send a picture of myself, but I put the tip of my shoe into a fragment of a place that had been meaningful to us to try to like wake up his mind. And then I wound up going to Italy to take a um, writing, a course, and I stayed for a two-week course with Joel Meyerowitz. Okay. Um, you know, I knew nothing about photography, <laughs> and like, and then, and the pictures with my feet in them, that my one green sneaker, all of a sudden the pictures began to be about me and where I was going. You know, so it was this very, and I think the thing that really sold me on photography at that point was when I came home from that summer, 
um, very few people knew the, what I was going through, and um, an, a very old dear friend of mine knew, she's an, she had an art history background, and I was showing her these pictures, and I was going, isn't this weird? Look, I, I keep taking fragments, you know, the, I work that's, ways of shooting, they're in my work today, off the edge of the frame, and, you know, like hands sticking in, or feet broken off statues, and I was like, that's really weird, isn't it? I said, I don't know why I'm doing that, and she just looked at me, and she said, Sarah, um, it makes perfect sense. Your life got shattered into a million pieces, and you're trying to figure it out. And I swear, you, you could, my jaw must have hit the floor because I was like, "Oh, oh my gosh, who knew that photography could do that?" You know, and I have since learned through the years a lot about it. And my, I've I learned from Jeff Jacobson and Charlie Harbutt how to understand the way my pictures are speaking to me. Mm -hmm. And I also have loved it so much that I tried to never pressure it to be um, an assignment-driven uh, creativity for sure. me. Because I'd already done every assignment you could ever imagine doing as a journalist, except covering conflict, which I never wanted to do. But I didn't want to go repeat that. I didn't want to play that game as a photographer because this, this photography thing, you know, like, gave me a language, it, sa it saved me, you know, it healed me. So I, I didn't want to make it be about pleasing somebody else. I hear a lot of talk today, you hear people talking about learning photography, and I get a lot of people emailing me and saying, hey, I want to learn photography, but I hear that it's really not worth going to school. And my response typically is most of these people are coming to me because they think that learning photography means learning shutter speeds and apertures and all that kind of stuff, which to me it really isn't. That's like a 15-minute lesson. But what it is, a big part of it, of photography school is understanding what your work means, mm. how it's being interpreted by other people, how to speak about your own work, mm. and how to put your work up in front of people and get it absolutely destroyed and be able to handle that. How to handle a critique, that's so huge. And I think one of the beauties, and I just talked to Stephen about this, one of the beauties of photography is it is a really wonderful, solitary pursuit. Even though that you are in the midst of all these other people and things so, are happening, so solitary. it's like a weird waking meditation yeah. that you get in. And it's funny because... I want to talk to people when I'm doing it. I always marvel at the photographers who stop and chat with people. Oh, and I stuff, talk and to like, everybody. I, isn't that yeah. funny? I just go, boom, you know, yeah. just into my own little zone. But but the thing is, and another thing... Of course you talk to everybody. I'm I married to Amy. I talk to, of course. <laughs> I mean, I have to like keep warmed up for Amy. But it's, I talk to everybody, but then when I'm good, and I'm, and I'm not good very often anymore because I don't do it enough to mm. be good. Mm. But when I'm good, I can bounce in and out of that state of mm. being alone in the midst of a crowd. And I've always told people that I really think in some weird way that you can make yourself disappear. Oh, I agree. And you pull it in and you put it out and you pull it in and you put it out. And it's what allows like documentary people to go in and out of these spaces. I but taught a student I had one time who was this really sparkling, beautiful young woman who just radiated love to everybody. It was like, Biz, we're going to put a lampshade on you, okay? Tone it down because... She kept getting pictures of like all the little kids running up to her and smiling. She's like, why am I getting that? I was like, because you're yeah. radiating this great big smile and laughing and, you know, being nice to them. It's like, we're going to put a lampshade over you. And it was amazing as she learned that tone it down, it, never completely disappearing because she's yeah, yeah, a lovely woman. But, you know, but to find that space and quiet that all of a sudden she was moving completely differently and these amazing pictures started to emerge. Now lampshades. Go, put a lampshade lamp on. Shade. I think literally you should have put a lampshade on. Pretty much. Well, I might have. <laughs> I'm just saying. If there was one there. There might be witnesses. So oh, we're, we're, siren? we're getting more going, sirens than humanly possible. Of course, I knew as soon as we stones, started this. Stones concert. Oh, the stones. Yeah, stones. yeah, yeah. 
So this going is back to the, Dan. this is what we call verite. This is called reality-based recording. Going back to the, your elementary school union organizer days, you got <laughs> it. You got into photography, and there's a lot of ways to dabble in photography. Mm. But when I met you, you were already doing essays. You were doing going back to the same place over and over again, and building bodies of work. And then you decided to go to Bosnia after the war. So that that's a, a pretty interesting commitment to go. Okay, this is the next step for me. Why Bosnia and why start go down that path? People you, in Bosnia ask me that all the time. <laughs> like, yeah. Why are what? you here? What? Are you Bosnian? Did you cover the war? I was like, no. Uh, I was sitting downstairs in um, our house where we were living in Silver Lake, and I'd been thinking the photographers I'd admired do long-term work, and I had enough sense, having been a you know a reporter and then a magazine writer, yeah, yeah. to know that you really have to love something to be part of it for that long. And I was reading actually an article in the newspaper that I worked for for many years, the Christian Science Monitor. It was five years after the end of the war in Bosnia, and for the first time since the end of the war, um, more people than ever before were wanted to go home, and okay. they they, were, they and it had been set up so that the international community helped people return home. One of the foundations of the peace accord was the right to return home. However, just as people were finally feeling secure enough to go home, the international community had gotten what was called Bosnia fatigue. Yeah. Most of them had packed up, and they were moving on to the next crisis, which at the time was East Timor. And I literally, I can remember my feet were up on the desk, and I slammed my feet down, and I went upstairs, and I told my husband, I'm going to Bosnia. <laughs> Honey, going to Bosnia. <laughs> See ya. Um, and six weeks later, I was there. And I'd, I'd never been, I didn't know, I, I found through people who, I think maybe somebody who covered the war, a, a translator, I, you know, I, I really went by the seat of my pants. I, I brought a journalist's mind to it in terms of thinking, well, they, these are the important issues. And um, I probably spent the first two years of that work thinking like a journalist because I think I was so overwhelmed. Like, I'm doing the aftermath of the war in Bosnia, which, you know, like had a massacre that was called the worst genocide since World War II. I, I got to be on this, you know. Yeah. So I, I had these subject areas that I worked in, which came out in the final project and they're in the book. But in the final two years of, of shooting, two plus years, I was like, this isn't how you shoot. That, you know, this isn't why you started photographing. You didn't come into it as a journalist. And then I just exploded out into the work that I'd started doing and that I'd actually gotten better at doing, which um, I asked myself two questions that are part of a workshop that I teach, because um, there's the classic, where do you stand when you take the picture, when do you snap the shutter, which I start the workshop with that I do, and they come from you know David Hearn and Charlie Harbutt. And, um, but I added two questions uh, into my work, and it's what made some of the best work. It was, what does it feel like to be here? make a photograph of that, whether it was how I was feeling or how I imagined the people around me were feeling. Another Stones fan Jesus. going by. And then, just ignore that, people. Just because we're more interesting. This is a violent city and we're in the middle of it. <laughs> and then it's a rock, it's a rock city. Um, and then the other question was, what am I not seeing? Which I literally, and that cover of the book came out of that question. Um, so it's just, those were, those were really you know, powerful, creative questions for me. Well, I think it's that interesting. It, that probably didn't answer your question. I don't even remember what the question was. But <laughs> what, do you, what do you think to, I do this all the time? If I'm supposed to literally answer a question, just make that clear. But what you said, one th very interesting thing, which is you went into it thinking this is what it's going to be, and these are the stories, and in the last two years you're like, what the heck, and you burst out in this other direction. Mm. I always start projects thinking, I like a project that I can see the 
the edges of because at least I know where the, con the confines of where I should be working. Yeah, it's helpful. And it never works. I mean, I'm two <laughs> minutes in and then I'm like, and well, like, yeah, that doesn't work. These uh, are living, breathing things. Yeah. Because, like you said, you didn't have a 10-year history of going into war zones and doing this kind of work. Mm -mm. Now, how long did you work on that? Five years. Five years. And then and a, a little bit beyond, but five years. And the book, the book came out in the, the fifth And the publication year. at the end. Tell me a little bit about the publication. Uh, the book is called Aftermath, Bosnia's Long Road to Peace. It came out in 2005, which was the 10-year anniversary of the war. Okay. I was smart enough, thanks to my background in journalism, to know that if anybody was ever going to pay attention to Bosnia, sure. it would be the 10th or possibly the 20th, which is, in fact, this year. I know okay. somebody is publishing a book on the 20th anniversary of the end of the war. It's a sad comment on us. But, um, yeah, it was uh, PDN named it one of the best photo books of the year. It was like I looked at it as the most expensive business card I would ever make. Yeah. Because I had to bring funds to the table. That's the dirty little secret in photo publishing. You bring a, you know, some, what's called subvention money. But I, nobody, I had a reputation as a journalist. You know, I'd won right. tons of awards, and I'm like, as a photo, and with the photographers I met, it was because I could match them, sort of experience for experience. They knew, like I, as the people I was learning from, like knew I was, you know, has had the chops they had as a writer and as right. a reporter. Right. But <laughs> nobody knew who I was as a photographer. And I was like, I remember kind of, you know, it was in the, and in the middle of that, before the book was even published, I came up with the idea of starting the Aftermath Project, which was hysterical, considering I didn't even know the book was going to be published. Nobody knew who I was. And here I, you know, was like going to start this thing. Well, that's interesting because we were joking the other night, you know, you started a platform for other <laughs> photographers who basically do exactly what you do to get their projects out and to get a book published about their work, which is yeah. interesting and commendable because it's not something, there's a lot of reasons to talk yourself out of doing that. But so you did the Bosnia book, and then you f you founded something called the Aftermath Project. Two year, before the, two years before the book even came out, I had the idea. Sam Abel uh, provoked me into it in a way. I took his project the first time I'd ever shown any of my photo work um, in Santa Fe. Was in Santa Fe. I took Sam Abel's uh, workshop for yeah, yeah. for long term yep. photographers yep. and long term projects, and I was also in Review Santa Fe. Um, so I had this real double hit. I've never shown the work. And I was with people thinking in long-term ways. And the question Sam asks everybody um, is, what impact do you want your work to have? And I thought, wow, I could answer that as a journalist. I knew I want, I want Congress to make, pass laws. I want, you know, and, and that yeah. happened in my work. You know, it was, I was used to that. But I was this photographer who came into it in this really personal way because I was shooting my tennis shoe and I lost my faith in words. Yeah. I was like, I kind of looked and I was like, wow. And so I thought about it maybe overnight, and I was like, I know what I want. I want young photographers to be able to think of themselves as aftermath photographers, not just conflict photographers. I was like, that's it, that's it, that's what I want to do. And then I, and I just was like, Vicki Goldberg was giving a lecture on war photography that weekend, and, and I kind of thought, yeah, that's an interesting idea, Sarah, because you have no idea that this work is ever gonna see the light of day. Yep. I didn't at the time know I have a book contract. And it was like, nobody's ever heard of you in the photo world, and you're going to start a grant program. You know, it was just like, I've, I, when I talk about the Aftermath Project, I basically say that the filter that should have been in my head, it was going, what are you thinking? Yeah, you know, goes away. A, it's hard, it wasn't there, but B, what you just said as we were talking about over the weekend, that I, I was listening to Ron Haviv talk about, you have to have a business plan. And I just walked into the seminar at that point, the 7-Evolution tour, and I, my mouth kind of dropped open. I was like, oh, 
business plans. I've, I've never had a business plan. I hate business plans. I, I don't think I've ever gone into a project with a There's business no plan. There's no business plan. And then yeah. I, I, I was joking with you guys later going, here's how not to have a business plan. Begin your work, you know, as a photographer on a, on a subject you're passionate about. And then, oh, start a nonprofit, work really hard to raise money, get to give to other photographers, and publish a book of their work yeah. um, every year. Yeah, and, I, it's and, not a business plan. And you did. I have done, yeah. And so the Aftermath Project, which is now in 10th year? The 10th grant, or the 10th grant cycle opens in August 2015, and it'll, the grant year is 2016. Look, to do anything for 10 years is, is a, a feat, and then to do something that, it's not like the world is running around saying, oh, I want to donate money to the Aftermath Project, because the Aftermath Project, in a way, reminds us of how horrible we are at times as a species to go to, to what we do, like, especially when it comes to the media moving on and there's like, oh, I haven't seen, you know, the battle of whatever on the news for a while, so it must be... It we must just forget about it. We think guns yeah. stop and it's over. Let's move on. And I, would I agree with you. To me, the horrible part that it shows is that we stop paying attention. M my... In some of the stories that are in Aftermath and some of the people who've been finalists, because we do a grant winner and four finalists and we publish everybody. Um, some of them really do go in the, this is so horrible, look at these victims of war, look at these rape victims. But I, and I would never, you know, it's a juried thing, it's not just me um, that chooses the grants and I wouldn't tell somebody what to do, but I always, yeah. my voicing of Aftermath was, it blew me away to discover that people had this intense desire to return home in Bosnia, back to the places where their neighbors had, you know, raped or killed. Yeah. And, I, and I, I marveled at the human spirit. And it was like, I, and I wanted to know, what does it take to restore civil society? You know, and I was amazed at the resilience of who we are and, and the difficulty and the tears. I mean, you know, my work in Bosnia includes the mass graves and exhumations. Right. But I'm just, I think aftermath, in the period of aftermath, I think it's where we begin um, to discover our humanity. And I think if war defines our inhumanity, which I think it does, I, you know, I'm not taking away from brave acts and compassionate acts during wartime, because right. they, they do happen, but war itself and what causes it and what comes from it, to me, that's, that defines our inhumanity. And I really think that it's an aftermath where we begin to write the story of our humanity again. So that's why I... I do the work, and it's sort of what I've hoped. I mean, the, our you know, one-line statement is war is only half the story. Um, and we fill that in, you know, it's, and we've been doing it for 10 years. Has it gotten easier over the 10 years or more difficult? To, what, to, to do it? To, to just run the entire operation. You get a little burned out. You know, I, I, mean, I've, it, it's, I mean, I joke about it not being a great business plan. And on one level, um, it, people in the profession love it and they're appreciative of the work I've done. They know that it, I don't have family money, I don't have foundation money, it's all been what I've been able to put together. Um, and I'm really grateful for the funders who've been yeah. part of it. Um, but so personally, you know, unless I can reimagine it, you know, it's, 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 it, it's, tire, it's a bit tiring. You kind of kind of go, wow, what could I have done with my own work if right. I'd given that energy and that creativity to that time? But on the other hand, um, more and more people get it and are coming to it. I have a more active board than I've ever had. I have, um, 
<laughs> in true journalism fashion, it's our 10-year anniversary. And people like that. You know, people want to get on board. There's, there, I, don't, it, I think we're going to be okay raising funds for a commercial book. We've self-published our books each year. I think we'll be um, able to raise the money for a commercial book and for the exhibitions we want to do. Speaking of the book. Yeah. So I don't know if you're, you're paying attention. But Where? There's, but there's this thing <laughs> called, called the internet. <laughs> the interweb. And, and the digital world. And the digital world. And one of the things that I loved to hear you say about Aftermath Project was that you didn't want this work to just disappear into the ether, that the book was a really important part of the whole thing. It is. So why a book in the digital age, and where do those books end up? Are there any specific places? Do any specific people get them? And why were you so adamant about doing a print piece? Because remember... Print is dead. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick, but you have time. Um, I understand what Patrick's saying. Well, I think the, the, the question of why print in a digital age, you also have to ask why a still image in a multimedia age. Mm -hmm. And we are absolutely you know, adamant that we support still photography. Not, I don't want to hear your multimedia yeah. presentation because there's a power and a, and a visual literacy that happens in still photography that doesn't happen anywhere else. And I'm not, a, you know, like a lot of people are talking about visual literacy, like filmmakers, sure. you know, because Coppola, I think, has got a thing on visual literacy. So um, the book mattered because you need to uh, touch it. You know, it's, and it's, I love our books because we set them up, I wanted them to feel like a workbook. Mm -hmm. So we have their hand bound on the sides with like a butcher tape, and, w and then we, uh, we, I, I believe it's been me for almost yeah. all can, eight volumes that we've done so far, or seven, I hand stamp volume, whatever the volume is, on every cover. Um, the pro bono mailings that we've done have been to journalism, um, journalism schools, peace building um, schools, uh, museum curators, industry professionals, editors, um, for the first six or seven years, we sent it to every U.S. senator every year. Um, Any response? <laughs> There's, oh Where's gosh. Bosnia? Who was it in Wyoming? Not um, Cheney. Enzi. Easy. I spent some time there as a kid. I'm just, it's okay. You're careful. This is, you're on thin ice. Every year, he would send a little note saying, I love reading. I'm looking forward to adding your book to my library. You know, it was just, he kind of like, oh, you know, you've sent that same note every... And it's nice, because he was one of the few people that actually sent a note. Yeah. But I, without follow-up, without a staff to be able to, like, go to Congress then and say, let's do an exhibition, or are you here... You know, you guys are talking about this bill. Let's you know talk yeah. about these stories. I realized that it didn't. It wasn't. Uh, it had a great ring to it when you were writing grants. Right. But I realized it, it. It wasn't an effective. It just wasn't effective. So we don't do that anymore. But and then we sell some. It speaks to to my next question. Your TED, you gave a TED talk in Nashville. And I did. You talked the about Neil, talk. Neil Postman. I did. And Neil writing in basically the early nineties. Did you listen to that? Yeah. They cut no, part I just of it. made it up. How do you what? think I got it? <laughs> I was like, "Whoa, damn!" They had to cut part of it. Um, go ahead, because I talked about politics and religion, which you're not allowed to do in a TED talk. Yeah, no, that's that's like dangerous. It was an ground. important part of the talk, but still. But Postman wrote about these things. It's Amazing. almost like the author. I'm trying to think of the author who wrote about the internet back at Neuro, Neuromancer. Who wrote uh, Gibbons? Right. Yeah, Gibbons. Yeah. You read that and realize the year that he wrote it, and you go, "You got to be kidding me!" So yeah, Postman talked so. about how the how the heck do you get anybody's attention? In this How do you make sense of it? How do you make sense That's of it? That's what Postman did that was so brilliant, that, that we had come into an age um, where knowledge was no longer power, that it was just 
zeros and ones, just this flood of data. And he was comparing it to previous years and um, how data had come to us more slowly and with meaning. And he wrote this incredible, it was in the Utney Reader. I still have, I, people ask me for it all the time. I still have my like original Xerox copy, but I've actually scanned it now digital so that I could just get email there. to people. I'm, I'm hip. Um, but he said, more than ever, we need the poets, the artists, the storytellers, you know, to make sense of this. And um, it's, a, it's just this really powerful article and, or essay by him. And I think a book is a place where you make sense of something. You experience things online, uh, you know, on, on like on our website. Mm -hmm. You can experience those photos in a way that it's set up. It's a pretty cool website. You know, we relaunched it a year or two ago with a beautiful design. But um, it's, it's a different thing than making sense. I don't think you always make sense. Uh, you, know, you know how you get your mind gets a little fried by too much internet and too much jumping around on social media. It's like, I think, I'm a big believer, and my TEDx talk was about that, in vertical thinking, mm -hmm. which the old, like, you know, Silicon Valley hip guys were like, no, horizontal thinking is the way to make organizations. I'm like, whatever. I'm talking about vertical thinking that lets you go deeper than, than five minutes. And I know that because it's in my personal life. I, like, I, I, I can struggle with multitasking. So a book is vertical to me. It's a place where you can come and spend that space and a still photograph is vertical in a world that pushes us horizontally. I think the quietness of a book is confrontational now. And I've talked to people who are art directors that say when they have meetings now with staff, they bring the meetings to them in book form because it forces people to put their phones down Absolutely. and they have to physically handle this thing. And read and touch and engage. And, I, that's so smart. And I think for me, what I'm after as somebody who makes things and puts things online and occasionally makes pictures and books is I'm after your undivided attention. Mm. I don't want anything else. And it's why I personally deleted my social media was that I found that I was going down a rabbit hole I didn't want to go. And I saw the people around me going down that same hole. And I thought, I don't want to do that. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pull the ripcord and I'm going to go see what life on the outside's like. And it's been interesting because... How's that, is that what's it been like? It's do been, you feel disconnected or do you feel more connected? Oh, I feel far more connected. And I, you know, people, I run into people that say to me, oh, how long did it last? Like my departure from social. And I'm like, I'm never going back. I kept a Twitter account because of Blurb. And Blurb will say, hey, can you tweet this? Or like on the panel this weekend and the organizers say, hey, can you, can you tweet this out? But the minute that I don't work for Blurb, I will delete the Twitter account as well. I, and what I found is that there is a really interesting core group of people, very talented people. The ones that I found at sort of the tops of the industry were not on social media. They were making work. And their representatives said to me, that per they're not on social media. They're, they make work every day. That's what they do. And so I experimented. I wrote about why I did it. And I said, look, if you're on social, Awesome. I don't care if you, if yeah, you like it. Yeah, it's fine. It's like if that's what people want to do. But but to me, I realized it wasn't helping me get attention, and it wasn't helping me focus my attention. But oh, it's so fo it's so about focus. It's interesting because I've had a l l sort of love hate relationship with Facebook for quite a while, and in, in which I I, I don't the only, I cross post my Instagram account, and I, and I actually love Instagram because I just like that way of chatting. You know, it's the it's, first one I deleted. I, it's okay. I understand, but I like the I like thinking square. It's just especially during a period of time when I haven't. Uh, the past couple of years have been kind of quiet for me creatively in yeah. terms of long term yeah, work. Sure, sure. So it's been a it's been sketches, you know. Yep. And yeah, I yeah. and I look at those photos, and for me, they are work. I love them, you know. And I just put them out 
if anybody wants to see them. But face, I'll cross post them on Facebook, but I am not, you don't go to Facebook to find, you know, like where I've been or what I'm doing. I'll post an important article or, you know, something sure. I think is worth a read or I'll repost somebody's Kickstarter campaign. But I hate it. I go on there and I just like, my, your mind just, like that whole horizontal thing. Oh my god, it's like 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 the old pong game. Like you know, like dung 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 dung. It doesn't it doesn't give you vertical space. You're giving me you're you're inspiring me. I think I may go home and delete my face. Don't do account. don't 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 use me for inspiration. Come on. Yeah, but it's just like Come that on. tip. You, you, I've already been there. It's I've, you're just it's like that little pushing me over the edge of so. Of it. I Wouldn't someone recently asked me for and I don't use Twitter, but I've got an account. Twitter to me was the I retweet. One you know, I like that go, I yeah, used retweet that, favorite that Twitter. Twitter tweet. to me was just about disseminating information. It was yeah. really good because it was global and it's fast, and and yeah. I don't follow the feed. It's impossible. Yeah, no, I don't either. But I was in Australia last year, or actually no, it was like four or five months ago, and was it's meeting with someone. Almost last year. Almost. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I guess mentally I made that be, jump. It could be was with someone who is in the creative world that runs one of the big festivals down there. And she said that the that suddenly creativity in, in Australia, or at least in Sydney, had been viewed in a different way because the business community finally began to understand the money that the creative industry was bringing in. That And they had never gotten credit for it because it's not a traditional business. Mm. So my question to you is... Do Wait, I don't have a business plan. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, forget that question. <laughs> I'm sorry. What was the question? You, I, I would like to pretend I know an answer to it. Do creatives have a responsibility it, to society, or what role do they play? Because I think as a creative, you literally have a responsibility to take chances, to do crazy shit, and not apologize for it, because that's what we're here for. We counterbalance the people who, who either, either don't want to or are forced into living a different life, maybe a more structured life, the business world, whatever. And then you've got people, it's not to say that you can't be creative in business, but I think the creative world, you're viewed in a very specific way that comes with an incredible amount of freedom. The, the story that I always tell is when I lived here in LA, my neighbor was a chef, private chef for some pretty high-end celebrities. And she had said, hey, will you come and photograph this thing? And I was like, no, because celebrities make me nervous and I don't like that world and I don't want to go. And she talked me into doing it. And the day before, I called her and said, what do I wear? This is like the dumbest question, but what do I wear to something like this? And she goes, you never have to ask me that again because they look at you as an artist. They're afraid of you. So don't ask it. You can wear anything you want because you have never have to apologize. You're the artist. And I wish more people understood that. <laughs> I can tell you that when people started saying to me, like, because uh, I've spent a long time. I mean, it, it was wonderful that I was married to a rock guitar player for as long as I was because I, you know, was in slightly, you know, a serious professional world of journalism. Yeah. And he just kind of pushed me. To, to no, just go be that or go do that. So yeah. it was a wonderful, and it, we got married. I was um, thirty, and it was just the right time to have somebody anarchic like that, because he's a total crazy, crazy um, talented but crazy guitar player. And so I got that sort of just validation at a, or push out of the nest at the time I needed it. And then I, so I kind of pretty much stopped caring about, it. and I went freelance. Like you know, really, I'm not yeah. in an office. And then people started saying, "Oh." You're an artist. Like I'd be in jeans, you know, yeah. and my cowboy boots or something, because I was like too lazy to put on something. For oh, you're an artist. Oh, you no, you look great. You're, you look great. <laughs> and, and I was like, I am so working this. I mean, the places I have shown up in jeans because 
you're an, an artist. artist. Yeah. You know, and gotten away with it. And it's not to be rude to anybody, I don't mean that, but it's exactly, it's like, it, it's yeah. amazing to me that people go, oh, you're an artist, which is a shallow answer on your deeper question of whether we have responsibilities. responsibilities. I think it's a sometimes painful responsibility. It is for me. You know, sometimes I, it, I just um, carry too much. Or there's a lot. I'm, I'm, I am personally extremely aware of the mental and emotional spaces that I'm in, mm -hmm. and 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 that, and that's part of what informs my storytelling, and yeah. I think makes it so intuitive, um, and probably feeds the type of work that I do when I when I'm working well. Um, but it's it's difficult, you know, to 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 to, to carry that. Or to feel. It's almost like a, a you know, a membrane between you and other things that, that you need to get back from I at, think, at points. I think there's a fragility mm. to people in the creative world because you're judged so frequently mm. and at, harshly at times. Mm. And so a lot of times it's like a turtle with a shell. People are afraid to stick their head out when, in fact... And you have, but you have to. Yeah, no, you have to, absolutely. Because like, that's the whole point. You just kind of go to fly off that nose and go, oh, you didn't like what I did? Sorry, because I'm actually enjoying myself. It's kind of, it's it's just a... It's a, when, when you, you know, it's funny when you asked about that, I thought, oh, I'm going to really throw down a curveball with this because, <laughs> I mean, you know that I have a faith tradition that I think, that I, I, I think deeply on spiritual things. Um, probably one of my entire favorite passages in the whole Bible is the first chapter of Genesis where God made everything out of light and it was good. And it, you know, it doesn't talk about matter. It's not the story of Adam and Eve. It's none of that. But I've struggled a lot in recent years because, um, you know, I'm not like, financially, you know, I mean, it's a... You don't I've have fat stacks of cash. No, I don't. I've, it's amazing how I've been taken care of over time. But um, I was thinking, wait a minute, what is wrong with this world that all the value is placed on people who can make, you know, who, who make things, make money, push pencils, are lawyer, you know, and I, I'm not disrespecting anybody's profession, but that, that we would put so much value or just a celebrity really yeah. millions and and that i know they're in an industry that makes millions so they should be paid but it's like something's so wrong because look at who we look at look at our tribe and what we do and this warrant the stories we tell and the reminders we the threads we weave of our humanity and the warning bells we set off you know i'm like that's just wrong and so i went back to that first chapter of genesis i was reading it one day and i was like wait a minute Wait a minute. His act, the very act of of his first and most important act, if you as as God, he creates. He creates. And heck yeah. And and it's not he doesn't count it up. It's not I mean that's the Adam story, yeah. you know, when you get into bean counting and shifting things around and fire and and war and all that stuff. But in those kind of 31 verses, he's creating. And and that's the whole point of it. And I was like, Okay, wait a minute. So if that's what he's doing, I'm on the right track, no matter what the rest of it is. And the kicker for me, answering your question of like, you know, how, about us being judged, was one day I read that it's amazing that thirty those thirty one verses over and over in my life I kind of go back to them. But um, and God saw. So for us as artists to get people to see our work, God saw everything that He made, and behold. It was very good. So, like, he saw it, he made it, he was the critique, you know, and I just... Self-critique. Isn't that great? I could, and basically what he was saying was, I nailed it. I did a great job. And I just sort of love thinking of, 
I try to think of my work as an outcome of, of that creative source and not so much a personal responsibility or a personal you know, discovery. But I really, when I hit that kind of paragraph, I laughed because I was like, oh, it's self-contained there. Well, it's interesting because... Sorry, did I get too spiritual on you? No, no, no. And, and it's an interesting question because you and I, when I, shortly after you and I met, we both went to Sicily. Mm. I saw your work from Sicily and I was like, what is that? And you said, oh, it's this thing in Sicily. And I was like, oh, that looks great. And we decided and like, to Let's go. go. Come. <laughs> and one of the things that really fascinated me about that story and the reason why I went back so many times is I don't really have faith. Mm. But I'm fascinated by people who do have faith. Mm. And to make a total right turn here in, a, in maybe, go for it. maybe a cheesy way. Get right off the cliff, do it. Is your, when I look at the future of, let's, when I say our industry, mm. I'm going to lump my, let's, I'm going to lump us into the photography world. Okay. It's when, our I, tribe. when I look at the future, it does not look rosy. It looks incredibly sketchy. And, mm. and there has to be in some way, shape, or form, you have to make a leap of faith that you can't, half-ass your way anymore in photography. You have got to commit. You have to have faith that you look and say, look, I'm making something that's really good that demands to be seen or needs to be seen, and I'm I'm 100% in. When you look at the future of this industry, what does it look like to you? You know, it's, um, it's again, I don't have business plans. I don't sort of look at yeah, futures of consistent. industries. I don't think of, yeah, I am. I don't even think of industries. I just think, Am I going to want to wake up tomorrow and make a photograph? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's how, it's the language I spent, you know, the first, you know, not quite half of my adult life trying to find. And I was a, re- I was a really good linguist, you know, as a writer. It was this language that had always been there, you know. So I don't, and I think to be a photographer, you, you can't let it ride on, is somebody going to like my work or is somebody going to give me an assignment? I mean, if you're going to want to learn photography today, you have to do it because it's like how you need to speak. It's because it's, you don't have a choice. I mean, I don't, I don't have a, I've, I've, I know some doc photographers who I really admire who've said, you know, if I, um, did it, you I know some doc photographers who I really admire who said, if I never had took another picture, I'd be happy. And I was like, oh my gosh, if I never took another picture, I would suffocate. Yeah, I'd go it, crazy. It's how I breathe. And I think that that's so future. I don't know. I mean, I, I learned on a Leica and Ektachrome. I learned in kind of a badass way. You know, you hit the exposure or you didn't, you know. So, I'm, I mean, I'm, in, I'm in a member of Local 600 now. And um, the Cinematographer's Guild is a still photographer. I love, love, love doing set work and, you know, it's like behind the scenes stuff. It's just like, oh my God, here's my fishbowl. I can, you know, and I, and yeah. I get to document this. Um, but, you know, I move from, so I have, I, I, like, I like digital. I don't have issues with digital. I use it for certain things. I shot part of the long-term project I'm finishing up this year on a Mia 7 in South Africa last year. I love that. You know, I love my iPhone for I always, I mean, I, you probably remember it. I was yeah, one the of the iPhone. first photographers. Yeah, the working on, um, on a cell phone. And it was a, Robert Clark and I shot with the Sony Ericsson P910. Nobody else was doing it then. Yeah. And they were 160 kilobyte files. I still have the print. Do you? The, the, the hamam Yeah, the picture. That's one. Yeah. That was the one Frisch Brandt at Frankel Gallery. She, was on, she saw it and she's like, oh my God, who, who knew a cell phone could be a tool, you know, an artist's yeah. tool or something like that. And, that, and so it was, yeah. Because I saw 
50 cell phone books after that. In the back of my head, I'm like, it's already been done. It's yeah. like done and you, know, you, get, you move on. But yeah, when I look at the future, it's like there is, there is a future out there and it's different for everyone. It's not as predictable. In the past, you were able to look at the photography world, whether you were in the labs or the dealers or whatever, and you could see six months, a year down the road. Mm -hmm. And now you can't see five minutes down the road, but mm -hmm. it's interesting. And I think when you go back to the beginning of documentary photography, those people had no outlet. They did it because they had to do it. It was what they got up in the morning and said, I don't give a shit. I have to do this. Gene Smith, you basically. You have to see the Japanese photography art exhibition. I think you I got to get fine back to Houston. Houston. You will, it will blow your mind. Houston, on a side note, I had not been to Houston since I covered the Republican National Convention in 1992. And that was the first time I ever shot for a wire service. Mm. That was the first time I got clubbed by the police. Awesome. Ran from the police. I made a bunch of pictures. I got my first picture on the wire, the whole thing. I had not been back, and I was so impressed with what's become of Houston, especially Amazing. certain regions there that I, I was like, Houston. oh, my God, it was cool. Yeah. I, I'm looking, looking forward to spending more time there. Good. But, okay, looking at the future. You, yeah. you did, but yeah, I don't sorry. care. These interviews are like the Mississippi. There's a few bends here and there. Uh, looking at the future, what's the best case scenario for you? Like if I, if I said to you, no restrictions, you have all the budget you need, all the time you need, what are you going to do? There's a documentary film I want to start. So would filmmaking, because you've made films in the past, would filmmaking supersede still photography? No, never. The hard thing for me, I mean, so documentary filmmaking, since Serena, I've made two, um, and I was totally the reluctant director. The first one grew out of a still photography project, this one in Africa. And I wanted to get somebody else to direct it. And they were so disastrous. And the crew was like, Sarah, you're the director. And I was like, what? what? I Reluctant director. I shot stills, you know, all the way through it too. But um, so I am the happiest I am doing anything when I'm making a photograph, when I'm behind a camera. And that's all I have to do. And you know what? Whether it's like I just shot portraits for the Guild magazine for the next issue. Mm -hmm. I had the time of my life. That was great. That was fun. I, you know, did behind the scenes on The Voice. Loved that. I'll be going to Rwanda you know, this year to finish my forgiveness project. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm shallow. It's just that I love making photographs. Yeah. I love using my iPhone. So, um, but the other part of me is that I love not necessarily me, but my work to be in conversation. Um, I'm actually kind of reluctant to talk to people when they come and say, oh, tell me about your work. I'm kind of like, I work in post-conflict. or you know, just, yeah. I just don't like to talk about it. But I want the work to spark a conversation, you know, to be part of a dialogue. So a documentary film, I will guarantee you, you know, is makes the biggest conversation I know how to have as a journalist. I mean, once I wrote something for the New York Times Magazine that had a pretty big impact, mm -hmm. a series for the Christian Science Monitor, pretty big impact. A doc film, like, I mean, my first film just got named to a list of uh, 100 best documentaries of all time, which is, I was What always, film was it? Uh, Fumble Talk about a grassroots forgiveness program in Sierra Leone. Um, I, I always look at those 100 best lists. I'm like, oh, that's stupid. That's just commercial. And then I wound then up on one. It. I was like, that is so awesome. So I'm shallow and hypocritical on that front. But um, so filmmaking is about having a really big conversation. But it does use, I directed and produced the first two docs. I had somebody else shoot them, although I shot um, part of the second one very badly. Uh, but it uses a side of my head that's a journalist, you know, that take, which takes me right back to organizing information and uh, every, it's the anti-photography, you know, like photography is a whole other side of the way I think 
the way I feel. Um, so the, this third documentary, I'm, I think the way I can work that out is I want to shoot it. So I think that'll wed my what I get from sure. photography, mm -hmm. um, which is um, why I'm here at Canon right now, just checking out some of those cameras um, to 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 be able. So I think that's where it's going to sit. But I I still love 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 still photography. Well, it's funny because I would I'm the last person in the world that ever thought he would be at Canon, even though my wife works here, to look at a, at a camera like this mm -hmm. because I get suckered in, you know, I look at this stuff and I see, I have a 5D3, it's video, and I see everybody making videos and I'm like, oh, I should be making videos. And then people come and say, oh, I saw your stills, you should really direct something, you should direct something. <laughs> and then I find myself with the stuff in my hands and realizing what a collaborative process filmmaking is, like shooting and editing and all the sound and all the things. It's incredible. And I realize that for me, I've always been such a loner, and I love the solitude of photography. I, and when I was in high school, I, my, my father was relentless about asking me what I was going to do. And I said, after, after school, and I said, I have no idea, no idea. And he got really frustrated, and he sent me to this guy where I spent three hours answering questions. And it was this like guy what that colors like, your parachute? Yeah, and he was like, okay, this is the career that you're going to go into. And at the end of the three hours, he said, I've never seen this before. I've been doing this for like God knows how many years. <laughs> and normally there's like 10 things that rise up and they're all within percentage points of one another. And on the top of my list was photojournalist. And it was like 98%. And then it dropped down and the second place thing was like cattle rancher or something, which I had. <laughs> which your dad was, right? Yeah. And so... <laughs> I was like, wow, wow. journalist. But I love that. And I realized that for me, the two things I love are sound and stills. Mm -hmm. And so my immediate goal is to do something that combines those two things without any kind of motion. And I think there's a few people out there in the world doing that. But I'm always curious about what people would do given sort of no restraint, no restrictions. Just, yeah, it would just be to shoot. And it's a, it's a funny, I understand that the, the, a, a documentary is a very collaborative process. And there's something, I mean, as a director... Your editor is your best friend. I freaking love documentary film editors. They're amazing. Um, and there's a comfort in some ways in, the, in that collaboration through the process. But like we already said, I mean, you actually talk to people when you're shooting pictures. I go way into my like, like, like zone. happy space, you know, and, and don't talk to people. So it, it's a strain for me sometimes to be making a film, which is such a long-term process. Although I do long-term... Photo projects, too, so I don't know what it's I'm talking though. about. It's different, though. I mean, the film requires a, so much more. You're talking and engaging and thinking and moving and planning and changing. And for me, the act of photographing, it probably is for you, too, is a moment of discovery, a moment of purely having no agenda. That, that's the best photography, the moments I'm happiest, when there's no agenda. It's just, oh, I got yeah. a camera. The, 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 oh, I, there's nice light. That's it. The idea Squirrel. of going out <laughs> with a camera in great light and just doing whatever the hell you want, yeah. it's the only, I mean, to me, it's the only thing that, like, really recharges my batteries anymore. It does that for me, too. Yeah, yeah I love it for that. So I don't, I don't, I don't worry about futures of anything, because it's always going to be there. And print will be there, and photos will be there, and I don't, whether it's digital or film or, I don't. Yeah, I don't care either. I mean, I carry all this crap, and then people look at me and go, you got to be kidding me. But at the same time, you know, I'm photographing Stephen Poster earlier, and he's like, like a guy. I'm a like a guy. They're old. The cameras are the exact same age as I as mm. I am, which I find interesting. I have one of your Leicas. Do you know that? Remember about your backup Leica? Oh, that's right. Mine was my my, my primary one was stolen in Ghana, but I I still have it. I, have, I still I have two, but I just carry that one. But the last question is, 
what's the one thing you don't have that you really want? And that can be anything. I don't care if it's a quadraphonic blaupunkt for your car. One thing that you want that you don't have. I'm or on need. the verge of it. A Porsche. Um, <laughs> to be absolutely fearless. That's what you want, mm -hmm. is to be fearless. Mm -hmm. Is that realistic? I'm close. I'm getting there. I'm at a point in my life where I'm starting to get there. And how close is fearless to crazy? Because don't you have to be a little crazy to be fearless? Do you know, it actually feels saner than at any other time in my life. And Interesting. It, it's a fearlessness of, of just like going, you can stop worrying. And it's been happening lately. Stop worrying about how you're going to pay your bills when there's something yeah, you really it, have to be doing. It's is that. it driven by a feeling that things are going to be okay? Yeah. I think that's what my shirt says. It's all going to, it's all going to be, is there a B in there? Yeah. It's all going to be okay. Yeah. I wore Ooh. this for you. Do, 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 do. I just figured that out. That's right. But yeah, it's that. But it's to be so fearless that you do your art, you do your thing, you have those conversations, you go, you know, it's a, it's a fearlessness that comes from a sense of groundedness as well, of just, like you said, of knowing you're cared for, knowing that things are okay, knowing that, that I mean, I've learned so much by the fact that I don't know where the next paycheck is coming from. Or, uh, and I don't, you know. I mean, there's some some lines of work, you know, people happen more often. But it's like, I just want to be fearless. I want to be fearless if I woke up and I had like there was no money anywhere on on the horizon that I I would know that that it would uh, just follow behind me as I needed it. Do you know? With so that I don't. I want to not look over my shoulder. And I'm getting yeah, and I'm getting close. Yeah, it feels good. Yeah. I think for me it was. Just saying, I care, but I also don't care because I know what I do, the relevance of it or the irrelevance of it on a global scale. And it's pretty irrelevant, ultimately, what I do when you consider that two thirds of the planet's looking for food and water and shelter. I know, so, I always like look at people and go, um, first world problem? Yeah. Let's just, first world problem, let's just be clear. <laughs> but at the same time, I care. Yeah. And, and then I also have had a very different attitude change when I got sick a couple years ago. Mm. And I was like, okay, this really changes the perspective. And people are like, you know, oh, what's it like to have that or whatever? And I'm like, there's actually a very positive side that comes from it because you realize I cut through all the BS, mm -hmm. don't have time, don't have energy for it. But it also kind of made me look at things and always be moving forward with yes being the primary, mm -hmm. you know, yes, let's do that. Oh, you want to do that? Fine, I'll do it. And not like placing tremendous amounts of baggage or building things up. It's like I just did this little collaborative book with another photographer and a designer, shot it in two days. We looked at it and said, hey, this is cool. We should send it to uh, you know Chloe in Sydney. Send it to Chloe. Yeah, I'll design that. Boom, what came out of it? You get this amazingly cool thing. And then people are like, oh, what are you going to do? And this and that. I'm like, I'm moving on. It's you know, you've always been, during the time I've known you, you've always been that way. And, and in, in a different, I'm sure it's developed over, over time, but I used to, I remember just marveling at you with like, wait, what? You're just going to, you, you're like, well, I've took it. I'm, I can put it in a drawer. I can do it out of mind. And I'd be like, no, 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 dude, dude, the work has got to be in conversation. That's my, always been my yeah. thing, you know? So I just love that it's, it's become even fuller and more articulate. <laughs> In your abandon of yeah. worrying whether or not it has a shelf life, you know. I just I think it's just learning and and understanding things. But I think it gets better the more you do it. 
I think if we just distill into our kind of finest, I, I would have to say on one, I was thinking about the stuff that, um, about, I don't know, about being grounded or things that, I, I, I would have to say, and this is just, you can cut this out if you want to, because it could sound like shameless self-promotion, but. Hit me. Um, getting a Guggenheim. Yeah. Ground, it changed so much. It, not that the phone started ringing or anything else. That's a heavy deal though. I mean, that, yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a, and it's a hard, it's, um, especially when you know that every photographer you know I've ever heard of has no doubt applied for a Guggenheim. And I, I think the legend is that, it might be wrong, but that Mary Ellen Mark applied like 14 times before she got one. You know, this was, this was the third time I'd applied and it was sort of like. You're like, I nailed it. No, it was kind of like, oh man, I don't want to finish that. I've made a documentary film out of, you know, Africa. I'm never going to be able to finish that still photography project unless I get a grant. What the heck? I'll apply for a Guggenheim. And, and, and I got it. And, and it's a, I mean, it's an astonishing, it's, it's kind of, it's astonishing. I mean, you get it and you sort of look at, they're very proud. They, they don't talk a lot. They, you know nothing about how people are chosen or the, who the judges are, except that they're former fellows and, uh, or they are fellows. You're always a fellow. Um, but it, it's, they're very proud of their photographers because they, it's kind of like the 20th century who's who of photography, mm-hmm. and, you, and you first sort of go, oh my gosh, look at who I'm in there with, and then you go, oh my gosh, look at who I'm in there with, that's scaring the living daylights out of me, what am I going to do, you know, and then... It's the all-star game. Yeah, and then, but then you just settle into it, and you just go, and I really, because I'm sort of an outlier as a photographer, I'm not in the thick of, you know, photojournalism assignments, I, as we've already discussed, I, my business plan has not put me at the forefront of, you know, the photo world as a photographer but I mean I know my work you know it's respected when I show up but you just stop and go if you have any concerns about whether or not you're good enough or you know have you made an impact you stop and go uh, oh right I have a Guggenheim yeah. <laughs> and it just shuts you yeah. up I oh, have never it is, it's as stupid as it is and I think it might sound really shallow I had no idea it would feel that way but I, it's left me like just kind of going yeah it's no, okay. I, I don't think that's a shallow thing at all. I mean, I think it's not something that everybody gets. It's not something that's easy to get. It's not something that's given away trivially. Tri- tri- uh, what's I the word mine. I'm looking for? Trivially. Trivially. I bought mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I went on. I, I slipped a five. <laughs> I went on eBay, and uh, yeah. it was a good deal. It was, it was a buy it now I got the price. little fake letter. <laughs> but it's, it, it's a big deal. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and you just kind of go, oh, there. It's okay. It's all right. And I, I, I've never felt, it, it, it could be I'm shallow that I needed that to just go, yeah, so what? Or, it's okay. It's okay. I, you know, I Well, I, I also think that, it's, you know? it's nice when you're taking creative chances yeah. and someone comes up behind you and says, oh, by the way, that thing that you did, yeah. that's We believe good. in you. And, yeah. and what the Guggenheim says is they believe you're at a pivotal point in your work and they want, they believe that by recognizing you at that time in your life as a fellow, you're going to go on to do great things, you know, and which is a little intimidating, but also encouraging, you know. And I, I don't know if I'm living up to that or not, but I, no, you know, you I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm secure, you know. Yeah. I feel, I, it's like, I kind of go, oh yeah, I, that's okay. I mean, you have a track record of great things, oh, which were you. happening before and, and after the Guggenheim. That's first very season, kind of you. So. Thank you. Well, I mean, I'm trying to be polite. I'm on an interview. Here, yeah. so. I mean, in, in private, it's, I'm going to be yeah, gracious. Yeah, give me endless amounts of grief. Thanks, Dan. So, thank you. 
Thank you. We've, we've hit I the always love minute you. mark. Oh, this is supposed to be 15 minutes. People are going to turn it off a lot sooner. But I'm here's sorry. the thing. The reason why I did this site was I wanted to put long form content online. And okay. I just said, look, if you want a 30 second clip, piss off and go somewhere else because there's a million <laughs> other places you can get that. I want a conversation because ultimately we haven't seen each other in a long time. Hmm. And if I sat here without this recorder, we might have had this exact same conversation. Probably. Yeah. So, and that's what it's about. So it's, I want people to put these on and play them in the background of their life when they're doing other things. So mm. I think there's probably three people out there doing it right now. So we'll see. <laughs> really glad to have caught up with you in, in, on a, on, a, on, on, on being on, recorded. Indeed. No, yes. really. You're, you're, you're always interesting. Well, thank you. And uh, let's do it again sometime. Thanks, Dan.